This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Dana-Farber scientists laid the foundation for CDK4-6 inhibitors, new drugs that are increasing the survival rate for many advanced breast cancers. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. This is Degrees of Freedom, a special production from The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. I was on vacation recently in Germany, and I spent a week in the Alps near the Austrian border. It's stunning. Massive mountains with green pastures where cows are grazing, streams that are a beautiful blue-green color. One morning, I went for a hike by myself. It was early, there was a cool breeze, nobody was around, and I felt happy and free, free from responsibilities, free from having to do anything at all other than keep hiking. I sat down by a waterfall and dipped my feet into the ice-cold water for a bit, and I really, really just wanted to keep hiking. But of course, a few moments later, I thought that I should probably head back. I hadn't told my family where I was going, and they would be worried if I didn't come back soon. I also hadn't had breakfast yet, and my stomach started to growl. Part of my brain said, keep going, just go. Another part said, turn around, get back to the hotel. That part won. In situations like this, when there is some kind of internal back and forth, I always wonder which part of my brain is really in charge of making decisions. With me, it's usually the responsible side that wins. When you start to question what you're thinking and why, it can feel strange, like you're exploring the command center inside of your head. But it's not entirely clear who's in charge. Am I really free to decide? As we learn more and more about how the brain works and we can see you know, different parts of it lighting up in people's brains when they're making decisions, it's hard to kind of escape the idea that actually the brain is making decisions. It's all those neurons that are deciding what to do and really you're just being pushed around by what your brain is doing. That's neuroscientist Kevin Mitchell. He's written a new book about free will from an evolutionary perspective. In the book, he uses one of his son's video games as an analogy. His son is player one, and there are characters that he interacts with in the game that are called non-playable characters, or NPCs. They have predetermined behaviors and lines. Hello, my friend. Check. Internal emissions sync engaged. The concern is that actually maybe we're all like the non-player characters. Maybe we all have kind of pre-configured policies and things that we can do that are guiding our actions in such a limited way that we're not really player one. It's just an illusion. We're not really in control. It's just that we're not aware that we're the non-player characters. That's the sort of dangerous intuition that comes about when you really get into neuroscience and things like behavioral genetics where we're not really making the decisions. And that's why I wanted to write this book. And, and of course, I come to the conclusion that we are really making decisions. So we are player one. We are player one, yeah. But even if we are player one, how free are we really to decide our own destiny, to choose our path in all things big and small? 
On this episode, an exploration of freedom from different perspectives. We'll examine the brain and how the way we're wired impacts free will. We'll discuss how other people help or hinder our autonomy. And we'll meet a man who used a single word to unlock that feeling of freedom in his life. To get started, let's stick with neuroscientist Kevin Mitchell. His new book is called Free Agents, How Evolution Gave Us Free Will. How do you define free will? Yeah, it's, uh, I don't. I try to avoid um, <laughs> defining it. And partly, it's not, I'm not trying to dodge the question. It's partly because I think if you look at the literature on the philosophy of free will, which goes back thousands of years, when you start with a definition, it just assumes or presumes so much of the answer to the question, right? I mean, we don't know what it is. That's partly why, um, you know, what I'm trying to do in this in the book is come to an understanding of what it is, as opposed to starting with a declaration that it must be this, and then saying, well, it looks like we don't have that. So rather than saying, you know, how do we define it, I'd rather say, how do we understand it? And the way I think of it is in humans, what we call free will, I would just call our capacity for conscious cognitive control. That is, we can think about what we want to do, and by thinking about it, we can set our own goals, we can think about our reasons, and so on, and then we can execute control over our actions. And really, that's an elaboration of the ability of other organisms to control their actions. We just do it in a more sort of reflective way, where we can actually think about our own cognition. Kevin says the question of free will for him really strikes at the heart of what it means to be alive. What does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to be a being at all? What, what is life? What differentiates living things from non-living things? And really, one of the key elements, I think, and this is something that's changed in my, I guess, sort of scientific philosophy, is, is the thinking that actually agency, the ability to act, is the prime characteristic of living things. And we don't usually think about it that way. You know, we talk about replication, we talk about metabolism and so on. Um, but actually, I think the really, really important thing that differentiates living things from non-living is that living things can do things, right? A rock doesn't do anything. An electron doesn't do anything. Things happen, um, you know, within them or near them or, or around them, but there's no action. There's no choice. And I think the evolution of life created the ability to choose, really. I mean, that's a scientific sort of view on a more personal level. It just lets me sleep at night, actually. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, that, that, those are sort of existential worries that we're just complicated machines, that we really are non-player characters, and it's all just a conceit that we're in charge. They're, they're very seductive. It's hard to get away from them. If you think about too much, you stare into the abyss and, and end up getting depressed. So I was glad in the end to be able to mount what I hope is a convincing defense of, of free will and our ability to actually really make choices. Give me an example of the opposite. So what are some situations where maybe I'm more like an NPC than I am a free agent? You know, where are some situations sure. where the kind of presets in my brain, the way I've been programmed through my own genetics, through thousands, millions of years of evolution, where that really comes into play? 
Yeah, well, I mean, a, a really sort of obvious one and one that happens all the time is when you're really, really, really hungry. And it's really hard to think of anything else but, you know, getting some food. And that drives your behavior in the moment in ways that sometimes you might not like necessarily when you fall off the wagon on your on your diet and you uh, wolf down a bar of chocolate in the moment and then you're filled with regret afterwards. And of course, there's lots of other ways that we can be constrained to behave in ways that are optimal, actually. I mean, we, we tend to think of this as a bad thing, right? We tend to think these constraints are always bad. Like ha we, we talk about habits and we say, well, you know, we've got bad habits, but actually most of our habits are good. Most of our behavior is habitual and that's a good thing, right? We've learned from past experience that there are certain ways that are a good way to behave in a certain situation and we just do that. We don't have to think about it all the time. But just because those kinds of situations exist doesn't mean that there aren't situations where we do think about it and where we can exercise control in the moment in a more conscious and deliberative kind of fashion. I think part of what makes all of this complicated is that we are both the presets and the decision maker. Or if we go back to the video game analogy, we're both the player and the game in that all of this is us, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. And it gets really complicated to think about when I'm trying to make a conscious decision, which part of my brain is talking and which part of my brain is this this other, I don't want to call it more primitive, but maybe more programmed part. Yeah. And and so you've hit the nail on the head there, Mike. And that's exactly the problem, right? That's the challenge with trying to think about this stuff. And it's partly why I decided in, in the book to take a an evolutionary approach to this problem because humans are the most sophisticated decision makers that we know about. You know, they're able to predict and plan and make goals over the longest time frame, over months, years, centuries into the future. We can plan and even, you know, for things beyond our own our own lifetimes. So trying to figure out all of these sorts of issues just in humans is really a bad place to start because it's the most complex embodiment of those sorts of things that we can think of or that we know of. So rather than doing that, what I you know, tried to do was back off and think, well, you know, what are the elements of decision-making that simpler organisms engage that are still there in us? They're the sort of the subconscious parts of the, of the brain that are working away and that we've scaffolded on top of those, these conscious deliberative faculties. So, you know, different organisms, even starting with the simplest organisms like a bacteria, they can act. They're agents in the world and they can cause things and they can move about. And when they do that, they're doing that to achieve some kind of adaptive end. So, for example, a bacterium may move towards a food source. That's a good thing to do. Natural selection has configured it. And so we all have these, you know, all organisms that are capable of, of that kind of movement have these control systems within them that are helping them to decide what to do. And of course, a bacterium is not thinking about it, right? It's not aware that it has a goal, but the goal <laughs> is kind of configured into it by mm -hmm. evolution. And as things get more and more complicated, you know, ultimately you get to humans, we can think about our own thoughts. We can reason about our own reasons. Those become cognitive objects in themselves, things that we can think about. And that which you know we call metacognition or introspection, that's really the core of what gives us this ability 
to not just be driven by our own subconscious reasons, but to get a grasp on them, to be able to look at them and inspect them and change our minds and, and set new goals for ourselves in a conscious, deliberative kind of way. And is the, the thing that gives us free will in terms of our brain power, is that this metacognition, the ability to think about our thoughts and to reflect on what is happening in the brain? I mean, I think so, right? It's, it's arguable. And, and the term free will is, a, is, you know, it doesn't really have a fixed a definition. But mm -hmm. I like to think of it as that conscious capacity for control, for cognitive control over what we're doing. And I mean, one way to kind of get a grip on what it is, is to think about situations where it's impaired or where it can be more or less. So for example, babies don't have much free will. They can't plan very far into the future. <laughs> They're very immediate, right? I mean, they respond to their immediate um, sensations and, and so on. But they develop that capacity. So so we can think of free will, not just this thing that all humans have in, in some perfect form, but as a cognitive capability, a kind of a skill that we uh, develop as we mature. And of course, it takes some work. And some people develop it more than others. I mean, some people are able to plan uh, longer, they're able to delay gratification, they're less impulsive, they're more patient, and so on. So there's a whole sort of suite of metacognitive skills, psychologists refer to as executive function, which vary between people. And if we think about this, the desire to make our own decisions, you talked about babies, and even in babies, we can observe this burning desire to make decisions for themselves very early yeah. on, whether it's yeah. not opening their mouth when they are supposed to eat something or yeah, yeah, yeah. or whatever it is, or when you're trying to like wrangle a baby into a car seat, you know? Yes. They <laughs> so, are willful, right? Yeah, they're yeah. willful little things. And, yes. and that, yeah, and that will emerges, right? I mean, and there is, you know, I haven't thought about it in that way before, but you're absolutely right. There is like a drive, right, to have behavioral autonomy. There's a drive, not just do things, but uh, I, I think to feel like we're in control of doing them and, and that our own feeling of autonomy is a really important thing. And that can be clearly an adaptive sort of faculty as well, right? It's not just that we can act in the world, it's that we have some awareness of whether we are the ones in charge of what we're doing in the world. And if we're not, then we may seek conditions in which we, we've restored the level of autonomy that, you know, that we think we should have, basically. And not, not in an overt psychological way, necessarily. You know, babies aren't thinking, oh, I want to have more autonomy. But there may nevertheless be an impulse there that's you know, somehow configured into the brain that it's a good thing to be in a situation where you're maximizing your control over the environment and yourself. In terms of evolution, what is the ultimate benefit of us having evolved to have this capacity to think about our thinking, to reevaluate decisions? It doesn't always seem to benefit the survival of the species. Yeah, well, it, certainly there can be times when overthinking doesn't pay off, right? No. And in fact, um, it, it's particularly why 
so much of our behavior is actually habitual, right? So we've done the thinking already. We're in some situation that's really familiar. We don't need to think again. It's actually not adaptive to spend any time thinking or worrying about what to do when we, when we already have some tried and true method that we should apply or some action that we should do. But there are other circumstances where we're in a really novel environment. And I think this is what differentiates humans from other organisms is that we have this behavioral flexibility that is incredibly general. We can really apply it to very novel scenarios. And that means that in those scenarios, we can think, okay, I haven't been in this particular scenario before, but I've been in one like it. And maybe there's a similarity here. Maybe there's an analogy. Maybe I should uh, apply that reasoning. But at the same time, you want to know, okay, well, how certain am I on? You know, how, how confident should I be in that? And I think the other thing that is really key in, in our evolution in particular is that being able to be aware of our own thoughts and our reasons for doing things allows us to tell somebody else. And this is really key because humans are a hyper-social species. It's really the secret to our success. We don't get far alone. We get far together. And the benefits of metacognition, of being able to think about thoughts and reasons, extend to being able to think about someone else's thoughts and reasons and to be able to tell them about your thoughts and reasons. And all of that is, gives a kind of a, a social glue and enables much more sophisticated cooperation to do more complicated tasks. You know, it's not just pointing and at something and grunting. It's explaining why you want to do something and explaining what you want someone else to do and why we can see into our own minds and we have a window into other people's minds as well. When you really start thinking about free will and metacognition, our ability to think about our own thinking, it becomes a loop. Kevin is very familiar with that feeling. That's all I do is think about thinking about thinking. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's your like job. It's like a death spiral. <laughs> yeah, overthinking is my official job title. Yeah. When we're thinking about our own goals, I mean, one of the sort of challenges that, that some people make to the idea of free will at all is they'll say, okay, you can do what you want, but you can't want what you want. That is, you can't decide what your goals should be. Right? You can act on them, but you're not choosing them themselves. And so you're not really in control. And I think that that's wrong on two counts. First of all, I think that it's just not true. I think we do choose our goals all the time. And when we choose a goal, that sets some context for other more immediate um, activities that we're engaged in, right? But people can say, okay, well, when you start thinking about it, though, and you start digging down and say, okay, well, where did that goal come from? And, you know, you, you get into this sort of infinite regress. And ultimately, <laughs> I think it bottoms out in a goal that we share with all living organisms, which is to persist, to stay alive. That's what makes living organisms alive, is that they do work to stay that way. So that's the ultimate sort of evolutionary imperative. And I think a lot of the particular goals that any organism has are scaffolded on top of that. And for us, you know, our goals are many, many, many levels away from that very, very basic evolutionary imperative. But that's still there. I think that's still the ground. And for me, that's, that's fine. If someone wants to say, well, look, you don't really have free will because you have an evolutionary imperative to stay alive and everything you do somehow derives from that, okay, I'm fine with that. Uh, you know, we, we really are organisms. We really do have a pressure to stay alive and persist and even, you know, reproduce. And those things inform, inform our actions. And if we didn't have those pressures, well, we wouldn't be here. 
Yeah, it seems like if I think about the framework like a sandbox and I'm playing in this gigantic vast sandbox, the sandbox is me wanting to stay alive. But then within that framework, I still have millions, if not billions of choices that I can make. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think rather than thinking about whether we have free will in some absolute sense or not, I think it's much more productive to think about degrees of freedom. How many degrees of freedom do we have? And that varies all the time. You know, it varies by context. And in some scenarios, there's one particular thing that we should do, and we're really strongly kind of constrained to do that. And that's, it's not constraint from outside, it's ourselves constraining what we should do, right? It's our past selves constraining what our present self does in the service of our future self. Uh, and then there's other, you know, scenarios where our degrees of freedom are much broader, where, you know, say it's a novel scenario, we haven't encountered it before, we really don't know what's a good thing to do. And then we're in a mode where we're much more exploratory. Maybe we just need to try something and see how it goes, right? That's how we learn. And through that process, we gradually accumulate the knowledge that, you know, kind of crystallizes into our habits and our characteristic ways of behaving that we accumulate through our lives. Kevin Mitchell is an associate professor of genetics and neuroscience at Trinity College Dublin in Ireland. He's the author of Free Agents, How Evolution Gave Us Free Will. Coming up, humans are social animals. We need other people to define ourselves. People's identities, like friend, mother, artist, provide a framework for their lives. But it comes at a cost. I think almost everyone has some identity that they would embrace, right? And it helps them navigate the world. It, it feels comforting. And each one of those identities limits us. That's next on Degrees of Freedom, a special production from The Pulse. This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, one of the largest recipients of NIH funding. Dana-Farber scientists played a substantial role in developing more than half the cancer drugs approved by the FDA in the last five years, data through 2022. They've made one advanced cancer discovery after another for over 75 years. Dana-Farber Cancer Institute is changing lives everywhere. More at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Breast cancer cells multiply faster because of CDK4-6 proteins. But what if blocking those proteins and stopping runaway cell division was possible? Dana-Farber scientists laid the foundation for CDK4-6 inhibitors, new drugs that are increasing the survival rate for many advanced breast cancers. Dana-Farber's momentum of discovery keeps finding new ways to outmaneuver cancer. More at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, where hundreds of researchers and clinicians make new discoveries inspired by the work of previous Dana-Farber scientists. See why nothing is as effective against cancer as a relentless succession of breakthroughs. Learn more about their momentum. Go to DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. This election season, you can expect to hear a lot of news, some of it meaningful, much of it not. 
Give the Up First podcast 15 minutes, sometimes a little less, and we'll help you sort it out what's going on around the world and at home. Three stories, 15 minutes, Up First every day. Listen every morning wherever you get your podcasts. This is Degrees of Freedom, a special production from The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about what it means to be free and to have free will. Social psychologist Brian Lowry says freedom is an idea we often oversimplify. And as a simple concept, it sounds great. Who doesn't want to be free? Who doesn't want to be able to say what they want and do what they want? But when you start to think a little harder about it, you can see the complexity. In his new book, Selfless, The Social Construction of You, Brian argues that what we believe, how we behave, what we want in life, it's all much more influenced by other people than we might think. Our dependence on others has lots of advantages, but it also impacts our ability to be free. So Brian says we have to think about freedom more deeply. First, what do we mean when we say we want to be free? And I I think... And people disagree about this, but I think what people mean is I want to be able to do and say what I want to do without anyone being able to stop me, without anyone interfering. I think that's what people mean. And that concept of freedom, I don't think we have. I don't think makes sense, actually. I don't think we want it even. You describe freedom as a longing, Can we think of it as perhaps something we strive toward or we think we strive toward? I think we can think of it that way. In the book, I make a distinction between freedom and the the kind of conversations many, many philosophers have about what actually is freedom, what does it mean, and drilling down. I separate that from the feeling of freedom, right? The feeling of being free. You know, like that unexamined experience, like when you're running, you're like on the beach and you don't have to show up for anyone, you feel free. Like I think that's what people have in mind. That's what people I think are striving for, a sense that they can decide how their life goes. But the freedom with a capital F or however we want to call that, the the freedom where we think, well, nobody's going to tell me what to do or what to what to think or what to say. That freedom, does it not exist? Is it an illusion? I think that's an illusion. I mean, so even the things we want, right? To be, to say, being able to do what I want to do, where does that want come from? You know, it's often if you think about like say something mundane, you're going out and buying a pair of shoes. Almost certainly you're being influenced in a number of ways by other people that you don't experience that as influence, but you still are being influenced, right? I mean, what color do you like? Why? Right? Why are you looking at those styles? You know, I mean, all these questions point to the influence that people have on you um, in a way that I don't think you can get away from, and I don't think you want to. What do you mean when you say you don't think you want to? Let's think this through. Like, what would happen if we were, quote, truly free? Well, one, I don't know what that would even look like. So stay with the shoe example. You'd go to the store, and how would you even begin to think about it? (laughs) I wouldn't even know what a shoe is. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. That's what I mean Why it's not, I don't think it's possible in the way that most people imagine it. And I don't think you want to. Like you, what you really want is to be influenced in ways 
that you feel are positive or that you feel um, respect you. Like you want people to say, I like this and you, you think about it and you like it too. Like that will be, that's fine. Like you don't feel that as a pernicious negative influence or taking away your freedom. And I think we just don't understand that as a reduction of freedom, which is what it is. <laughs> I mean, your preferences don't come from nowhere. And those preferences and the influences on those preferences make it hard to be free in the way I think many people imagine they are. What if I were totally alone? Would I be free then? Well, sure, but you wouldn't be human. <laughs> <laughs> so you can, you can choose. I mean, I <laughs> if you are completely and absolutely alone, I don't know what it would mean to be human. You, you would not be human. But what if I were, let's say... If I removed myself more, and we see people do this, right? We see people move away from others and try to have more space or more room. Is that a desire? Does that express a desire to be more free from those kinds of influences? I think, you know, I, I, yes, I could see that. And I think in the book, I, I, I allow for that possibility a bit. But in reality, I think it's, it also might be an illusion. I mean, to be you, to make sense of who you are requires other people. And to have a sense of freedom requires a sense of yourself, right? Like you, I, I, I pre, you have to assume that there is a you before you can ask the question of, are you, before you can ask the question, are you free? Am I free? You have to know what the I is there. And what I'm saying is I don't know how you have a, a sense of self, an I, without other people. Brian says our social selves, our social identities, provide a framework for our lives. But part of that framework also means limitations. Think about gender. Right? So if you identify yourself as a woman, I, I identify myself as a man, and people generally interact with me as a man, but that also means that there are constraints. Like, how do I dress? What do I think is appropriate in terms of behavior and interacting with other people? What kind of spaces do I feel comfortable in? Right? There's all these implications for every identity that we accept and embody, and each one of those things limits our freedom a bit. And if you think of freedom as just a good, it, that something it gets a little confusing because I don't know. I like I, I like to identify as a man. I like I, it feels comforting to me. I understand it. I can engage with that with the world in that way that makes things clear for me. And that's not true for everyone, but I think almost everyone has some identity that they would embrace, right? And it helps them navigate the world. It, it feels comforting. It feels like who they are. And each one of those identities limits us. And so there's where you start to see like, okay, do you really want to give that up? Do you really want to give up that identity that's meaningful to you for more freedom? I guess it depends. You know, I was thinking about <laughs> as, as a woman, I have often limited myself in terms of Choices that I don't think about, but they've been ingrained in my behavior where I 
don't do certain things if I'm alone. And it's it's become so much part of how I operate in the world that I don't think of it as limiting. But then when I th- when I do think about it, then I'm like, yeah, that is annoying. And it is <laughs> it is limiting. You know? Yes, it is. I, so here's a here's a different think of a different example. Like I get that. So it's easy to look at the negative um, aspects of of any identity and say, think of how it's constraining you. Like that's true, and because we think of constraint as a negative thing. But imagine, I don't know if you have kids, but if you are I a do. mother, mm-hmm. okay, you're a mother. That also is a constraint. Yes. <laughs> right? And, and, I, and there are, can we think of negative aspects of that? Sure. But you can't just give up the negative aspects, right? You have to give up all of it if you give up the identity, every aspect. Like, are you willing? I don't think most people are willing to do that. I don't think they want to. No. So it's a package deal in some ways. 100%. It's not, I mean, you can, there's a difference between shifting the identity, right? So if you're, you could imagine, there's no reason that women have to be constrained in all these negative ways, but I'd argue you can't have women without having some constraints. Otherwise, there would be no need for the category at all. Now, when people fight for quote, freedom. You know, there have been many, many important historic struggles where people fought for what they believed was freedom. And maybe it was more justice might have been the more appropriate term. But I mean, there is a lot of power in that desire to to have more control and more agency. 100%. I, I would not disagree with that. So the idea that someone is limiting you it produces um, a negative experience that people will fight for, right? fight about, right? fight to avoid the constraints that other people might impose on them. But the thing is, I guess part of what I'm saying is we, com- we impose constraints on ourselves all the time, happily. People also fight to maintain identities that constrain them. So we say people fight for freedom. That's true. But people also fight to maintain the boundaries of their groups, which in essence are constraints. Do you ever feel free in a way that is enjoyable where you think, oh, this is it? I sometimes feel unburdened. I don't think I ever feel free. Here's another way you can you can see the absence of freedom. Like I, I am very cognizant of the moment I live in. And this is the only moment I can live in. That's a constraint. I can't live 100 years ago. I can't live 100 years in the future. This is it. I, I, I'm aware of that as a constraint. I'm aware of when I walk out into the world, people interact with me the way they do. Like I can't control that. And it affects me. It affects not just like what I can do because someone is you know, helping me or not helping me. I mean, it affects what I can conceive of, um, what I can understand about the world, how the world appears to me. That's about the people that interact with me and what I learn and what's been written that I have access to, what I see on TV, the advertisements that we're exposed to, the, how nice or unpleasant someone is to you on the street, all these things are affecting you all the time. In that context of that, to say you're free, I I don't know what that is. I don't have that experience, but I sometimes feel unburdened. And I think that's maybe 
a version of what people are talking about. Like I don't, I'm on vacation and I'm not worried about doing work. You know, I can choose to just lay in bed for, you know, a long time and watch TV or do nothing or sit on the beach or walk to a coffee shop or whatever it is. That feels great. I love that. That feels like what I think people mean when they say freedom. I guess sometimes, sometimes the world around us, the society around us, I can either think of it as a net that that I'm part of and that supports me, but sometimes it can feel like I'm entangled in it and it's trapping me. But either way, it's always there. Yes, that's why one of the chapters in the book is called "Hugs or Straight Jackets." <laughs> <laughs> so it's you know it's that someone embraces you, you can see them as constraining you, or you can see it as warm and comforting. We tend to often focus on the negatives of whatever limitations there are that come with being part of a society, being part of a culture, but there are also a lot of positives that I think are easy to overlook where, for example, the fact that people will put their trash in trash cans or people will stand in line when there is a line, you know, or the fact that people will stop at a red light. Those are all limitations, but they also make life a lot more enjoyable for all of us. Oh, yeah, it's, it's bigger than that. I mean, the limitations that you accept allow for almost everything you see right now, wherever you are. I mean, we think about the complexity of the things that we've created as human beings, this phone, right? To think about how many people had to participate in that to produce it, right? It's not just the technology production, which is also incredible, but the mining of the metal, the, the chemistry behind the glass, the components in the, in the phone, the shipping it, the constructing of it, the shipping it to the store, all the people at the store. I mean, it's just immense. And all of that requires that everyone gives up a little bit of freedom to play their part. Like there's nothing in the modern world that doesn't, to some extent, depend upon us engaging with each other in ways that produce incredible things, but also require limitations. Brian Lowry is a social psychologist and a professor at Stanford University. His new book is called Selfless, The Social Construction of You. You're listening to Degrees of Freedom, a special production from The Pulse. We're a weekly health and science show. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up, we'll meet a man who used one word to feel more free, no matter where the journey took him. It's the next thing I knew, I was crowd surfing above this crowd. You don't have control over your body. You're going up and down and fast and slow, and people are trying to push you to the next person. And, and all of a sudden, I get pushed and dropped onto the stage. That's still to come. Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, the automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares how cash can be part of a balanced savings strategy for investors. Oftentimes people think of their cash as the money they're using, but when there's a high rate environment, your cash can also be a form of savings. So savings can sit in your cash account and savings can sit in an investing account. And on average and over time, 
investments go up, but in a high interest rate environment, you can get a more predictable return in a high yield savings account. And so investors can choose both strategies, an investment strategy as well as a cash strategy to both protect your principal because cash doesn't go down the way markets can, but also to earn a high yield. Learn more about high yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed. Cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Schizophrenia and Psychosis Action Alliance, shattering barriers to treatment, survival, and recovery. People with schizophrenia can recover and thrive. More at WeCanThrive.org. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Noom. Noom understands that not everyone is starting from the same place and takes that into account. With their first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, you can find a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. This is my voice. I can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on Black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. This is Degrees of Freedom, a special production from The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. What prevents us from feeling free? Often, fear plays a role. Fear of rejection, ridicule, failure. And sometimes we suffer paralysis by analysis when we overthink everything, weighing the pros and cons. Nicole Curry had a conversation with a man who used a single word to feel more free. To illustrate the philosophy that guided his life for several years, Alex Shamil tells me a story. It's one of his favorites. It starts with him going to a heavy metal concert, even though he's not a fan of loud and distorted music. He won free tickets from a radio call-in show and made a friend go with him. The band is called Atreyu. We're kind of in the back of the crowd, like having fun with it. And there was a person standing next to us and they're like, hey, do you want to go crowd surf? Alex's eyes go completely wide. Crowd surfing sounds crazy, dangerous, but without hesitation, he says yes. The next thing I knew, I was crowd surfing above this crowd, and I was the first person there that had crowd surfed all night. You don't have control over your body. You're going up and down and fast and slow, and people are trying to push you to the next person, and and you keep getting pushed along, and, and all of a sudden, I get pushed and dropped onto the stage. Alex stood up and peered past the blinding lights to see hundreds of fans. They were jumping up and down, screaming and egging him on. He had long hair at the time, so he did the first thing that came to mind. I had banged with the, the band. I had you know, the guitarist on my left and I had the bassist on my right. Alex did this for a couple of minutes until he realized that maybe, just maybe, he should leave the stage to the professionals. I quickly walk to the edge of the stage where there's the stairs to get down. There's this big security guard, and he looks up to me, and he's like, "Uh uh-uh, back the way you came. (laughs) And so, like, sir, do you know where I just came from? Like, I was on the stage. But I'm not going to argue with this man. Like, 
So I went back on the stage and I'm like, you guys, catch me. And there went Alex, diving off the stage in belly flop style. And the crowd catches me in their hands. And it's just one of those surreal moments where I'm like, how did I get here? Alex grew up as a timid kid, introverted, unsure how to insert himself into conversations, and often afraid to try something new. How did he get from being a shy kid to diving off the stage at a heavy metal show? The answer can be found in how he introduced himself to me. My name is Alex, and Yes Man is my nickname. Yes Man. It all started when Alex was a student at Green River College in Auburn, Washington. His spring semester was coming to a close, and he was thinking about his summer break plans. I didn't have an internship, I didn't have anything lined up, and I didn't want to be just working at a KFC. He says, no offense to KFC. But I didn't want to be working fast food uh, where I was living at. I wanted to do something special with my time. Alex's friend made a pretty random suggestion to work on a farm in Hawaii, a work and live program. Alex was 21 at the time and had never traveled before. He thought, why not? So he said, yes. On his first day in Hawaii, he had to pick a place to stay on the farm. He walked around with other farm workers as they called dibs on where to unpack their belongings. And one of them happened to be a, a treehouse. And this treehouse was 30 feet up in the air and this big Hawaiian tree with these big old branches coming out, big flowers on the branches. And, and there were some other people working on the farm, but nobody had taken this treehouse. And so as I'm walking around the farm trying to pick where to, where to stay, it was like, well, I mean, this thing is open. Am I just going to walk past it because there's, you know, I'm kind of nervous about it? Why did everyone else say no? But that was when I said yes. Another yes. Alex climbed up to this ancient-looking treehouse and started to experience what most children dream of. 360 degrees of windows on the whole thing, and I could hear the cokey frogs every night just cooing me to sleep. It was just a very special, free feeling to be in that treehouse. Alex was experiencing a dose of freedom he hadn't really felt since he was a kid. It's so out of this world. And so as an adult, to be able to do that, it makes you feel like a a child again. And and that, there's some freedom in that. Alex sat in this treehouse and realized how he got there. He didn't contemplate or overthink. He just opened his mouth and said, yes. It's pretty clear how our decision-making can be a taxing event. You are wrestling with doubt. You are wrestling with fear. These are types of things that we all face. So what if you didn't have to face these doubts in your mind? Saying yes doesn't mean it's not going to be terrifying, maybe, to do the thing. But half of the battle is not the doing, but the thinking about doing. When we're faced with making decisions, big or small, Our brain draws on previous experiences and information to decide whether to say yay or nay. It goes through a checklist, weighing pros and cons. And sometimes we loop endlessly through the potential benefits and rewards or drawbacks and risk. 
And now Alex was going to skip that. He decided that he would say yes to everything. Questions from people, requests from bulletin board flyers, or just anyone asking for help. He did this for over a year. And like the heavy metal concert he went to, it pushed him out of his comfort zone and into new spaces. He signed up for a hiking trip that covered 10,000 miles. He bought and fixed up an old van. Alex also learned new skills. On a yes, I moved to Bozeman, Montana in the middle of the winter in my van. I got a job snowplow driving for the city, and I started ice climbing for the entire winter. And since then, I now call myself an ice climber. Alex even spoke at his college graduation just because they needed speakers to fill the time. Odd, right? Before I start my remarks, I'm going to ask us all to do something. Keep in mind, Alex was not valedictorian or the school body president, and he usually hates speaking in front of large crowds, but there he was, trying to get the audience to do the wave. Okay, can we do that? On the count of three, when I point towards your section, I want everybody to lift both their arms high into the air, just like we do at basketball games. Alex racked up hundreds of experiences, big and small. It was all exciting, but this freedom paved an unpredictable path. Saying yes to everything didn't always work out for him. Like the time he saw a post asking people to support an online auction, art for a good cause. I was like, wow, that is so cool. Like, I really want to support what they're doing. So I, I messaged the guy, the moderator who was setting it up, and I said, hey, I will bid $5 more than the current bid on all of the pieces of art. He received an email a month later. The first line read, Hey, you're the unfortunate winner of four fine art prints. A measly $5 increase on each bid ended up costing him thousands. And it was a little, uh, it was challenging to get through those times of finances. But I realized after that 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 was like a clear example of you can't say yes to everything. Alex stopped the Yes Men Act. He settled into a home in Portland, Oregon, and got a job as an engineer. That's where he is today. He's 29 now. But he tells me in hindsight, those experiences of saying yes all the time were crucial for him to step outside of the box and set aside the fear that was ultimately holding him back. Saying yes in the beginning does give you this rich, weaving tapestry of experience of life, a very chromatic life with all these colors and vibrances and all of these, these beautiful parts to it. And once you can see that, oh my gosh, there's so much out there, then then you figure out what is the most beautiful thing that you want to dig into? What is the most beautiful color? And that is where you focus your attention. And you use yes again, not to make the tapestry wide, but to dive into one specific part of it. And to me, Nicole, to me, the saddest thing in life is a, is a person that doesn't realize that the world is beautiful. Alex thinks back to when he first went to Hawaii and how much he's changed. Saying yes has made me more spontaneous. Saying yes has made me more confident. 
saying yes has also made Alex a rock climber, a hiker, a person who listens to heavy metal music just a little bit, and a person who rarely overthinks decisions. Because I know that when life provides opportunities down the line, I already have the answer to these things. I don't have to use my bandwidth to think about them. And that lets me, instead of being anxiously focused on the future, I can be more present and more in tune with right where I'm at. Not too shabby for a kid who was shy, timid, and letting the world pass him by. For The Pulse, I'm Nicole Curry. You've been listening to Degrees of Freedom, a special production from The Pulse at WHYY in Philadelphia. You can find us every week wherever you get your podcasts. I want to break free. Our health and science reporters are Alan Yu, Liz Tong, and Grant Hill. Marcus Biddle is our health equity fellow. Alan Hinnich is our intern. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. Our producers are Nicole Curry and Lindsay Lazarski. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening. Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland family. The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life. The Commonwealth Fund supports The Pulse and reporting on health equity. The Commonwealth Fund, affordable, quality health care for everyone. Behavioral health reporting on The Pulse is supported by the Thomas Scattergood Behavioral Health Foundation, an organization that is committed to thinking, doing, and supporting innovative approaches in integrated healthcare. WHYY's health and science reporting is supported by a generous grant from Public Health Management Corporation's Public Health Fund. PHMC gladly supports WHYY and its commitment to the production of services that improve our quality of life. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash NPR. When voters talk during an election season, we listen. We ask questions, we follow up, and we bring you along to hear what we learned. Get closer to the issues, the people, and your vote at the NPR Elections Hub. Visit npr.org slash elections.